This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 20th of March 2021 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday, and we have a busy show ahead. Coming up in the next half an hour, Simon Brook is here to look through the newspapers. Our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, delivers his weekend column. This is the last part of a story about the big things, life, death and skateboarding, and about saying goodbye to Meg a 92-year-old woman who died three weeks ago. Andrew Muller shares what we learned this week. We learned, continue to learn, indeed, that this year's Eurovision Song Contest is shaping up as quite the vintage for those of us who enjoy the annual croon-off, not so much for its appalling music as for its astonishing facility for provoking richly entertaining controversies of truly rarefied stupidity. And we'll hear from the MD of Love Reading, the UK's leading book recommendation website, which has just launched a new literary festival. All that coming up right here on Monocle on Saturday. Do stay with us. Opponents of Myanmar's coup protested again today as international pressure on the military junta to halt its repression of pro-democracy supporters increased, with Asian neighbours joining Western countries in condemning lethal force. Two people were killed overnight, taking the death toll since the February 1st coup to 237. Australia's east coast was smashed by heavy rains today, sparking dangerous flash flooding that forced the evacuation of multiple regions as the fast-moving waters unmoored houses, engulfed roads, stranded towns and cut power lines. Most of the coast of New South Wales has already seen March rainfall records broken and authorities warned the downpour was likely to continue for several days. President Tayyip Erdogan pulled Turkey out of an international accord designed to protect women, the country's official gazette said today, despite calls from campaigners who see the pact as key to combating rising domestic violence. Erdogan's decision comes after he unveiled judicial reforms this month that he said would improve rights and freedoms and help meet EU standards. And in our weekend edition email bulletin, from African art to moth management, via the resistible rise of the feather boa, we have plenty to get your weekend reading started. Read more at monocle.com forward slash minute. Well, now let's have a rustle through the papers. I say rustle, but of course most of it's online these days, particularly when we go uh, further afield. Uh, Simon Brook, who is a media consultant and a journalist, uh, is uh, on the line to guide us through the front pages. Good morning to you, Simon. Good morning. Uh, now, let's start with The Times. Now, this is a story that is, in fact, reflected in papers across Europe, and it's huge fears for a third wave. Yeah, very much so. As you say, um, newspapers across um, Europe are looking at uh, this third wave, which we might be facing. And of course, obviously, it comes on the back of Paris entering a month long lockdown after France has recorded almost 35,000 cases in a 24 hour period. Um, the Times is looking at it from the point of view of, of UK holidaymakers who might already be looking forward to uh, relaxing on a beach uh, chair in 
in Greece or wandering around a, an Italian square in the next few months. And it looks increasingly likely that they won't be able to do that. Um, according to experts that The Times have spoken to, European holidays in May and even in the summer look doubtful. The paper says scientists are apparently wary of outbreaks of the South African variant in some European countries and uh, some are calling for tougher travel uh, restrictions. So I think this is an interesting example of how the media, certainly in the UK, has been getting very excited with our uh, vaccine programme here. But in fact, perhaps we ought to sort of douse down that optimism a bit, according to this story. And I mean, a lot of people have already gone ahead and booked, although I guess the, uh, nobody's booking without insurance these days. No, well, that's that's a big question. Exactly. I think, yeah, I'm sure we all know people who have uh, got a bit gung ho and thought, I, I can't stand it. I've had enough. I do need to get out, uh, especially of Britain with its uh, legendary dreadful weather. And I do want to go and see the rest of the country, the rest of the world rather. But um, it, certainly that optimism, as I say, does seem to be doused down. Uh, in the, the Times story. It also looks as well at the, the effect that the surge in cases is likely to have on Boris Johnson's attempts to prevent the EU from blocking exports of the Pfizer jab to Britain. Um, according to the Times, um, the UK Prime Minister is hoping to recruit allies, as they describe, such as Belgium, the Netherlands and Ireland, to oppose uh, the EU, uh, the European Commission. But that is backed by Germany, France and Italy. So I suppose it just shows really how political uh, the vaccine is continuing to be. Absolutely. Now, uh, over this last week, uh, many of the newspapers have been dominated by the events of last weekend when we saw a big uh, vigil take place in Clapham Common here in Britain, uh, which was to uh, honour the memory of um, of Miss Everard, who was tragically murdered. And this highlighted uh, many aspects of violence against women. Uh, and that's something that The Times is running with today. Yeah, exactly. Another interesting story, I thought, in The Times. And I think it's, it's a sort of it's a positive story, really, if anything positive can emerge from this about how the debate is now evolving about less about what women should do to protect themselves, but more, you know, what can we do uh, to prevent them being subject to this violence? What can how can we change the attitude of men? And the story is about uh, Diana Puccio, who's who prosecuted sex crimes as a DA in New York. And her colleague, Alison Havey, also a New Yorker, a journalist. But in fact, they, they met together in North London when they trans uh, located here. Um, they set the project up, according to The Times in 2012, uh, af after meeting at uh, the school gates um, and really hearing horror stories from their children. So RAP, as it's called, which is raising awareness and prevention, um, the aim is to is to educate children. And there's, a, there's an interesting... Um, quote from Diana Puccio, who says, um, sexual violence escalates. No man suddenly wakes up one day and abducts women, abducts a woman. And I think it's interesting, as I say, how this debate is looking now at the, the role of men and how we can educate boys, really, from the earliest, um, you know, the earliest age possible, just to have a, a more positive attitude towards women and to be aware of their own responsibilities. Absolutely. Let's uh, cross the Atlantic now and have a look at The New York Times. Yeah, this is a story that um, this is about uh, the, the the Metropolitan Museum in New York and uh, museums across the country who are struggling with uh, how do museums fund themselves without visitor fees and also in the knowledge that probably government support may well be cut, you know, as governments struggle to, to pay the bills and things. So um, the uh, the paper reports on a loosening of uh, a requirement by the Association of Art Museum Directors, which 
has long prohibited American museums from selling works of art. Well, as I say, that's now been loosened and the paper reports that the, the Brooklyn Museum, for instance, has so far raised close to $35 million at auction sales. The Newark Museum of Art is doing the same thing. Um, as I say, this is very much a US story, but it's, it's a question that uh, museums, art directors, art museum directors around the world are going to be, have, to be, have to be facing, isn't it? How are they going to pay for themselves? Is it right to, to sell uh, some works of art just in the short term? to keep the doors open. And I wonder if the, the buyers of those works of art are then leaving them in the institutions for the public to look at, or are they removing them and putting them on their own walls? That's a very good question. Exactly. This would be a wonderful opportunity, wouldn't it, for philanthropists to help out? But, I mean, you'd hope you'd do that, and then, they, you know, then as you say, people could leave them on the walls and we'd still see them. But I suppose the risk is that uh, they would be going to private collections and, uh, you know, there's a danger that they might disappear um, from public view for a long, long time. Yeah, right. Well, we've all disappeared from public view <laughs> for a long time. And some would say that's a good thing, particularly if you looked at my uh, root uh, regrowth. Uh, the FT picks up on that story, though. Yeah, this is one of those um, one of those surveys that sort of confirms what we all suspected, which basically is that uh, a year on from the start of the first uh, COVID lockdown, there are going to be big changes. Slightly un uh, unexpectedly, it says that surveys point to people emerging from restrictions feeling happier than they did when the curbs were initially opposed. But anyway, yes, uh, the, the, the FT has looked at the figures and uh, has uh, proved what, as I say, we all assumed, which was that um, we are not going to be going back onto the underground. For instance, subways around the world will be quieter. In London, the tube is 80, journeys are 80% lower than they were at pre-pandemic levels. Uh, Zoom, we're all familiar with, um, and those other uh, platforms. Um, apparently, there were 1 million uh, visitors to Zoom uh, uh, a week uh, in February 2020. Now it's 25 million, so uh, a big increase in there. But um, yeah, the, the paper making the point that uh, it's too early to say in some, to some extent, but one thing we can be sure about is that uh, this lockdown will certainly have changed the way we all work and, and we interact with colleagues and friends and family, um, certainly in the short term anyway. And then beyond that, we'll have to wait and see. But uh, big changes, certainly. Absolutely. Simon, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. That was Simon Brook and you're listening to Monocle on Saturday. Now, our contributing editor, Andrew Muller, recaps what we learned this week. We learned this week of a dramatic spike in the walrus population of Ireland. Yes, that is what they sound like. Off to a rattling start this week, narrator and producer thinking with one mind. Which is to say that Ireland's walrus population spiked dramatically from zero to one. As if in some long-delayed and somewhat obtuse rebuke to the labours of St Patrick in this very week of his day, the large flippered sabre-tusked mollusk slurper was observed beached upon a rock on the shores of County Kerry by Agog locals. We, we thought it was a seal at first, but then once it breached out of the water, we could see its ginormous tusks. And it's, it, it, it's a big creature, like it was, it's the size of a bull. We learned, however, that the considerable charms of the Kerry coast were insufficient to tempt the creature into a longer stay, perhaps even as a replacement for Fungi, the long-resident dolphin of Dingle Harbour, missing since late last year. 
Is, is, is there some sort of missing dolphin noise? Surprise me. Tricky, isn't it? As mysteriously as the walrus arrived, he was gone. More as we have it. We learned, continue to learn, indeed, that this year's Eurovision Song Contest is shaping up as quite the vintage for those of us who enjoy the annual croon-off, not so much for its appalling music as for its astonishing facility for provoking richly entertaining controversies of truly rarefied stupidity. <laughs> and or its regular provision of material which pads out a couple of minutes in a humorous news monologue. Recent weeks have supplied us with a ridiculous theocratic tantrum about this. Starting to grow on us, if we're honest, and a daft political controversy about this. To these, we learned, we may now add a preposterous diplomatic spat about this. That is the right speed, don't write in. That, we learned, is Vasil Gavanliev with Here I Stand. He will be representing North Macedonia. At issue, we learned, was not so much the song itself, possibly because everyone forgot it while they were listening to it, but the appearance in the accompanying video of... an artwork which looked... a bit like... The Bulgarian flag tipped on one side. Oh my god, really? Oh my god, who cares? Who gives a stuff? Whatever. It's a flag. Well, that's what we thought. But we learned, because once we'd got this far invested, we felt we had to, that there's a whole thing between Bulgaria and North Macedonia. And then it turns out that the guy who sings the song is a dual citizen of both countries, and that the kind of people who care about this sort of stuff, i.e. angry lunatics with Twitter bios in which national flag emojis and the phrase proud dad feature prominently, were teeing off massively. That was more your metaphorical teeing off, but fine. We also learned upon consulting our bookmaker that we could pretty much name our own odds on North Macedonia this year, but we are going to cling to the hope that on the night the hosts inadvertently refer to North Macedonia as merely Macedonia, so we can get another bit out of it when Greece kicks off about that. Kicks off. Better. And in what has been quite a week, four lessons in the disruptive potence of popular song and vis-a-vis -vis the migratory habits of the walrus, we learned that at least one of the many, many censors employed by the government of Iran is possessed of truly exceptional dedication and diligence. For it was they who, in the interests of protecting the virtue of the revolution, had to hurl themselves in front of this. Let's go. Oh, bitter, bitter. 
That, we learned, is Tokyo Tehran by the colossally popular US-based Iranian singer Sasi, over which several of his Iran-based collaborators are now helping local police with their inquiries. We learned that the problem was not so much the track, which, while dreadful, scarcely seems grounds for arrest, as the video, specifically the cameo therein by the American actress Alexis Texas, star of a hefty catalogue of the sort of films whose plots involve the pizza delivery guy being rewarded for his labours in excess of his expectations. That kind of thing. So we learned that at least one of the tireless, pious, dutiful and devout invigilators of Iran's Ministry of Culture and Islamic Guidance recognised her? For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. You're listening to Monocle on Saturday. I'm Georgina Godwin. And here's our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, with his weekend column. Before we start, this is the last part of a story about the big things, life, death and skateboarding, and about saying goodbye to Meg, a 92-year-old woman who died three weeks ago. The final preparations have been made And to keep things simple, recognisable and calming for those attending, the conventions of a funeral have mostly been adhered to. There are some personal downsides to this strategy. For one, my music suggestions have been roundly disregarded. You see, the final CD that it looks like Meg played was the very best of Bob Dylan. And so I thought that knocking on heaven's door would be ideal. But then... I unwisely chance my luck by also floating the idea of blowing in the wind. How would that ever be appropriate for a woman who's going to be cremated, asked my partner. I could see some merit in his response, but recognising my role on the music committee was doomed, I went full out. So I suppose there's no chance of lay lady lay. I am to be in charge of flowers, and my advice may be needed on matters of typesetting, and photo selection for the order of service. Oh, and Mozart and Elgar will be given the musical tone setting instead of me. Selecting pictures for the order of service is anyway a less contentious matter. On the front we will have Meg at Soho Farmhouse in Oxfordshire just a year ago. Black roll neck sweater, a single string of pearls. We crop the photo to take the focus away from the lineup of champagne coupés in front of us. On the reverse is the picture that we found of Meg in her 20s on a ski slope. The service is not in Stratford-upon-Avon where she moved to just over a decade ago, but in the Cotswolds village where she previously lived in a house inspired by Frank Lloyd Wright and with a garden running down to a stream. It's the house she also lived in with Charles. She married him when she was 47, but he died from an aneurysm after 11 years tipping her back into the life of a single and very social woman. But now Meg and Charles will be reunited in the church's graveyard when her ashes are interred in the coming days with his body. I know I fret about the details, but it feels a little odd. Shouldn't you both choose the same burial option? If you x-rayed the soil in the coming days, would it just look like Charles had packed a flask of soup for the trip to the afterlife? But first something not so pleasant. 
we're standing at the church gates. The 30 mourners allowed inside under current COVID rules and a large number of villagers who knew Meg and want to say goodbye. Just as the hearse arrives, a man in his 30s comes down the road in the opposite direction on an electric skateboard. When he realises it, he cannot easily get past. He jumps off the skateboard. He runs up to the hearse and he starts hammering on the glass. You're in my way, he hollers. I freeze. I'm not sure what he thinks that Meg can do at this juncture. The large team of undertakers gently intervenes. Finally, he goes, still screaming. You nearly ran me over. Now, you have to admit, it would be a good business idea. Use a hearse to mow down unpleasant people in front of churches. Have a coffin on hand, pop them in, and then call the family and suggest that if they have their credit card on hand, you could find a slot for them in the next 30 minutes. Anyway, Meg ignores all the kerfuffle. The vicar apologises for the drama, and we follow her into the church. The church is Norman, stone, the tops of the pews indented and polished by generations of people rubbing hands along their backs. It's sunny and butter yellow light beams the air. Even the vicar is from central casting. David, my partner, reads Henry Scott Holland's Death is Nothing at All. While clearly you could be had under the Trades Descriptions Act for that statement, it's pretty good. Call me by the old familiar name. Speak of me in the easy way that you always used. Put no difference in your tone. Wear no forced air of solemnity or sorrow. Then my turn to do the eulogy. I read the column that kicked off this series. In the end, I take out the bit about incontinence pads. When I come to the final lines about the miracles of life, the passing on of the baton of existence, I feel the tears running down my face. Then we all follow Meg back to the hearse, the coffin held aloft on the shoulders of four of the black-suited undertakers, because now she needs to see the cremator before joining Charles. There are buttons of primroses dotted in the spring grass. On the breeze, you can still hear Elgar's Nimrod playing in our wake. The lead undertaker puts on his black gleaming top hat. He swivels it gently to make it fit perfectly. And then he walks in front of the hearse as it eases away. We watch until it is out of sight. Thank you very much to Andrew Tuck. And, uh, of course, you can always listen back to that uh, on our podcast. Uh, or, in fact, you can read it. Why don't you sign up to our weekend edition email? And that means that every day uh, your own copy will drop into your inbox for free. You're listening to Monocle on Saturday. Now, exciting news for book lovers. Love Reading, the UK's leading book recommendation website, has launched a brand new digital festival. And I'm joined on the line by Deborah McLaren, who's Managing Director of Love Reading. Deborah, good morning to you. Good morning, good morning. How are you? I'm very good and very thrilled to hear about your new venture. But before you tell us about it, tell us about your existing venture. What is Love Reading? I understand you started in 2005. 
That's right, that's right. So we've been around a while. We are a portfolio of websites that are all about sharing book love. Um, we encourage our readers and our, our members to find their next favourite book, find a new debut author or just find books maybe from authors they've never heard of. Um, so we have Love Reading, which is for, for you and I. Um, we have Love Reading for Kids, which is for those kids in our lives. And we have Love Reading for Schools, supporting teachers and parents to engender reading for pleasure. Mm. I mean, I just, just, just looking at what you do for children, I, I love the fact that you're basically curating all of these wonderful books, sending them out, you'll wrap them up. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful way just to keep children interested. Oh, it so is. And, you know, it's it's hard, isn't it? Because, I mean, I grew up loving books, absolutely adoring them. Um, but not everyone has that. And, and for us, I think it's about giving children inspiration and helping parents find books that maybe reflect kids of today more so maybe than some of the ones we, we loved growing up. So they're this gift, gift subscription box set that we do is a great way of giving the gift of a book to the little bookworm in your life or to encourage kids to read more. Absolutely. Uh, and now for adults, you've got a variety of online tools, though, as well. I mean, you, you, you send out personalised newsletters, for instance. We do. We do. We have a weekly newsletter, which is all around our, we've got a, a great team of experts, our book lovers, and they are constantly reading right across the genres and finding books that we think people will love. So whether you're a thriller fan or whether you love family drama or dystopian, we've constantly got a stream of recommendations and they are available on social or in our weekly newsletters, as you say, and you can even download opening extracts of the books as well to, you know, try before you buy. <laughs> uh, now, your very exciting new venture. Tell us about your festival. Yes, we are incredibly excited about this. It's it's the very much the manifestation of a vision we've had for a while at Love Reading. And it is, as you mentioned before, a, a digital, a digitally native subscription-based book and literature festival. So it is week in, week out, all year round. And it, you know, it's just giving people a different way to consume bookish content. If you're a book lover, get involved. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it sounds very exciting, but what sets it apart? Because online festivals are now quite a crowded space. I have to say I'm chairing at least two events a week now since lockdown. And I know many people doing similar. So because, of course, everybody's moved on to the virtual platform. What makes your, yours different? I think what I think one of the things is that we have we've got such a scale already with love reading with the experts with our team um and so we you know we we've 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 got great relationships and and I and I think what we've tried to do with this is is maybe try to look for areas where there might be gaps so most festivals will have the big names and of course they will be very much a big part of what we do, talking to world-beating, best-selling authors. But I think what sets us apart is, is really helping people maybe find authors they never knew about mm -hmm. or they'd never heard about. So something that's very close to Love Reading's heart is, is debut writers at the start of their careers. 
And this is something very much that is going to be a big pillar of, of the content we're creating um, throughout the year. Finding people on that very first novel and, and, and helping our subscribers Mm, mm. Uh, you know, come in from early doors and, and go with them on that journey. So debuts, I think, is is very different. It, you don't often see much of that. And I think the other is is an area where we feel has is maybe not necessarily neglected, but we feel deserves more of a um, a springboard, and that is translation, writers in translation, translated fiction. Um, there are so many amazing award winners, you know, award-winning international writers out there that we um, are, are speaking to when we've got tons of, of these events. So um, that's important. And finally, probably, <laughs> is the kids' programme, mm. you know, because reading for pleasure with children is such a big part of what we do. Um, we're going to have a great uh, programme covering kids' books, working with illustrators, um, and uh, we could go on. Honestly, there's so many. Mm. Masterclasses is another. We've got a great masterclass series that's going to be launching in a couple of weeks with the wonderful Joanne Harris. So it really is a way of giving you your bookish fix, and whatever you like, you will have it here. Mm. It's not one particular area, it's, it's all of it. I love the idea that it goes beyond your traditional um, author interview, that you do have your masterclasses. I know you're planning to have debates uh, and, and you're also going to look at the publishing industry. You're going to be talking about various aspects to do with books, not necessarily the books themselves. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. We uh, had an absolutely phenomenal um, session um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, with a couple of literary agents, um, Luigi Bonomi and Catherine Summerhays, and, and them chatting about their world. And it's just so fascinating for someone who, my background isn't the book world, and I found myself in this amazing place, but it's such, I think, a great inspiration to people who, who would love to, you know, peek behind the curtain and see what all of the individual roles look like. Uh, so it's going to be a great, a great series to mm. give people sort of the inside track, yeah. Now, we're always banging on about independent bookshops and supporting them and buying through bookshop.org on this programme. And you have a buy-the-book facility on your website. Absolutely right. We are currently working with one independent bookseller uh, and we will shortly be uh, extending that into a nationwide community of independent booksellers. They've had such a tough time this year, haven't they? And I think it's they have risen to the challenge. They are, you know, they're incredible and we feel very strongly about making sure that we can support them where we can. Um, and and yeah and, and help them along the way because we don't want to lose them we want to keep them there precious precious parts of our society yeah, absolutely uh, Deborah thank you so much for for talking to me uh, people can find you on love reading dot love reading yes love reading sorry love reading check it out and do sign up to our fortnightly news newsletter. Deborah McLaren, who's Managing Director of Love Reading, thank you so much for talking to me. And that's all we have time for on this part of the programme, which was produced by Carlotta Rabello and our studio engineer was Nora Hull. I'm Georgina Godwin. Monocle on Saturday returns next week. And, of course, our programming continues now throughout uh, the day. And just a heads up that, of course, our own literary shows go out uh, premiering on Sunday. Uh, our current edition of Meet the Writers is Peter Oborn talking about his book about uh, Boris Johnson 
Johnson, Donald Trump and, uh, well, really the, the loss of truth in politics. And then tomorrow, our brand new edition of the show comes out and it is with Naomi Ishiguru. Uh, so that's all coming up on our literary content here on Monocle 24. Monocle on Saturday returns at the same time next week. Thanks for listening.